Our scripture reading this morning is going to come from two passages. Uh, The first passage is going to come out of the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. The fourth book in the Bible, chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. And then the second passage uh, from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. So if you have your Bible, either in a print copy or in a digital form, I invite you to turn to these two passages. Numbers chapter 21, beginning at verse 4, and then we'll turn to John chapter 3. I'll just give you a little context here for Numbers chapter 21. This is in the 40th year of the wilderness wanderings, the sixth month of the 40th year. And so we read that from Mount Hor, they set out by way to the they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. That was the heavenly manna. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Take a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now turn to John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, 
but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to uh, these uh, passages in the scriptures that are linked together, even by the Lord Jesus, and pray for the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit to understand uh, how these scriptures speak to us of eternal realities, how they speak to us of the things that we need to know most fundamentally with respect to who we are before you. Lord God, open up our hearts and minds to understand your word and understanding it, to trust and believe it, and above all, to find Christ in the full sufficiency of him as he's proclaimed in your gospel. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we have these two passages before us this morning. And they illustrate the theme that we've been looking at through this year. That Jesus himself had said to the Pharisees and to the Jewish leadership, you, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these which bear witness concerning me. Which is to say that it's not just the New Testament from the Gospels through the book of Revelation where we find Christ. Jesus said that if we understand the scriptures clearly, if we truly understand the scriptures, we will find Christ witnessed to, testified about, prophesied about, explained, symbolized, metaphorically presented in all manner of ways through all manner of Old Testament genre of literature, we will find Christ and the theme of Christ and his theme of redemption there. So from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, all of Scripture is about one primary person, the person of God and the purpose and the person of his Son, God himself in Christ, the entire theme of Scripture. And so we come to this passage here, John chapter 3, this nighttime encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus, who is a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the ruler of the Jews, by his religious convictions, this man is a Pharisee, so he believes that salvation is by the works of the law. He comes with the conviction that because of what he has seen, the miraculous signs which Jesus has done, that Jesus must be someone whom God has sent into the world. Jesus uses this nighttime visit to open up and to explain to Nicodemus the way of salvation. Now, the Pharisees, we know, uniformly believed that their whole relationship with God was grounded in and based upon their law-abiding, law-respecting, law-obeying performance. Uh, they believed that their righteousness was by their performance of the works of the law. So in keeping the law, they found themselves to be righteous, and they believed that their righteousness 
which they produced by obedience to the law, was that which was pleasing to God. A Pharisee would answer the question, how are you to be justified? And he would say, by my own obedience, by my performance of the law, by the fact that I do what the law requires, God must look at me as faithful, obedient, and justified in his sight. My salvation is what I can produce before God by holding fast to his law. Now, that was the righteousness which Nicodemus believed and trusted in that night that he comes to talk with Jesus. The works of the law, that's where we find salvation and justification. Now, if this were true, if obedience to the law could bring about salvation if our good works could save us, then there would be no reason for John 3.16. There would be no reason for God to send his son into this world. There would be no reason at all. If we could save ourselves, God would not have to supply for us a savior. So in speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus is going to use this Old Testament story to actually demonstrate what is true about salvation. That no one can save himself. It is necessary, absolutely indispensably necessary, that God would send a Savior into this world. And the only one who can provide this salvation must himself be God. And so it's God the Son who comes into this world to be the Savior. Now, the main idea then that we're going to be looking at that really combines both Numbers 21, 4 through 9, and these first 16 verses of John chapter 3, the, the central idea can be stated this way. Because you and I can't save ourselves by anything at all that we could ever do, by any amount of supposed good works in the sight of God, what must save us is faith in Christ, faith in who Jesus is and faith in what Jesus has done. It's that faith in the person and work of Christ which grants us salvation, which gives us everlasting life. So the theme, the main thing we're looking at is the message of saving faith. Saving faith. Now I want to look at it from three perspectives that we find in the text. I want us to look first of all at the beginning of saving faith then I want us to move through what Jesus says to the meaning of saving faith. And then finally, the way Jesus talks about the object of saving faith. And how in understanding what is necessary for saving faith, the beginning of saving faith, and then the meaning of saving faith, and then the object of saving faith, we will in fact see that we can't save ourselves. That we need a Savior. And that Savior is the one that God has given to this world. And it's by trusting him and him alone that we find ourselves made right with God. Now, it's a simple gospel message. You may be thinking, yeah, I, I've known this for a long time. Now, that's what I believed years ago when I trusted Christ as my Savior. But I want us to understand that the gospel that saved you five years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, the gospel that once saved you is still the gospel that you need every day. 
You never grow beyond needing the gospel because you never grow beyond needing an ever-present Savior because of the ever-present sin in your life. You need to find in Jesus your constant spiritual food. You need to find in Jesus your constant spiritual strength. You need to find in Jesus that one who will always be able to say to your conscience, I died for your sin. The guilt has been removed. Trouble your heart no further. Trust in me. We need that every day. And we need to understand that in the brokenness of sin, which never quite leaves us as Christians, we must always be relying upon Jesus and the whole Christ and all that he is rather than upon ourselves. That is to say that we live the Christian life not by our own effort, but we live the Christian life by continual trust in Jesus, that same trust that saved us when we first came to Christ. This is a message for believers, not just for those who do not yet believe. So the first thing we have to begin with is in the story itself is what is the beginning of saving faith? Where does the beginning of faith begin? And it begins with understanding that there is a deadliness to sin. The beginning of saving faith is the deadliness of sin. That's what the bronze serpent story is all about. That's the great truth about the human condition that the bronze serpent story actually illustrates. We see this in several ways. Um, consider what the story means at the personal and individual level. The serpent's bite was deadly, not just debilitating, not just weakening, not something that made you sick for a few days. These fiery serpents, by the way, modern reptilogist, forget what the name is, that those who study snakes and snakes alone. Thank you. They will say that the snakes that there exist in that section of the Sinai Peninsula, most of them are deadly vipers. And most of them have a venom that, you know, today we might have an antidote for it, but in the ancient world there was no antidote at all. Bitten by one of several species of vipers, you were dead. Now, the fiery serpent here means uh, not that they were on fire and not necessarily the coloration of their reptilian skin, but the sensation of being bitten immediately affected the nervous system in such a way that you were on fire from top to bottom. Your nervous system was inflamed. That's why it was called a fiery serpent, because of what happened to you when you were bitten by these snakes. But the point is, the venom was 100% fatal. If you were bitten, you would know it immediately because of what would happen to your body, and you would know immediately that you were doomed to die. Now, the symbolic meaning of this very real event is the spiritual truth that is being illustrated by this, the very nature of sin and the very nature of the effects of sin. 
When God's people rebelled against God, they sinned, they sinned deeply. So God sent these serpents into the camp to bite them, to inflict death upon them, to declare to them in that manner, that very graphic and dramatic manner, something that he had already taught them again and again, and that is this. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Our personal sin is fatal. It leads to death. Now what this also meant then is in terms of a person's relationship with God. Uh, The deadly actions of these serpents were driving home the point that sin puts us on the wrong side of God. It puts us outside of his blessings. It makes us a target for his judgment and punishment. God is the one who sent these serpents. God is the one who was always irrevocably faithful to his spiritual principles and his spiritual laws, the wages of sin death. Then also we see the deadliness of sin presented here in terms of the incapacitating power of sin. No one bitten by a serpent had the power in himself to overcome the serpent's venom. No one had any innate resistance to this poison. There were no natural immunities. There was no available antidote. If bitten by these snakes, you had no power to survive its deadliness. No one got better on his own. No one was self-healing. No one had some homeopathic potion or lotion or ointment available to address this problem. It's the same way with sin. A major part of the deadliness of sin is its power to destroy all ability and power to fight it, to resist it, any strength to beat it. There is no natural immunity to the deadly force of sin. You have none. Which is why Jesus also said in John chapter 8, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. No one has the ability to emancipate himself from this power. No one who is bitten with sin has the power to overturn in himself the spiritual law. The wages of sin is death. There's a fourth aspect to the story. Most significant because Jesus is speaking to a Pharisee. As I mentioned before, this episode took place in the 40th year of the wilderness. The 40th year. Which is to say that they have had virtually all of the law of Moses for 38 years. What is said in Deuteronomy is a second giving of the law 
not new laws, uh, not some new things that have come up in the 40 years. It's just a second giving and a second reiteration of the law that had already been given during the first couple of years of the wilderness wandering. That is very important. The law they were living under this 40th year was the law that had governed them for 40 years. And that law, given by God, had no provision at all for addressing fiery serpents who had bitten them. Moses couldn't send anyone who was bitten by a serpent to some provision within the law in order to be saved. There were no sacrifices which they could offer that were going to save them. In fact, even their best hope in the law was the Day of Atonement. But this is the sixth month of the 40th year. The atonement isn't happening for another month. None of them are going to live that long until that day happens, that day in which all the sins of all the Israelites would be covered in that great ceremony of the, of the two goats. No, there's no hope for them at this point. There is nothing within the law of Moses given by God that can save them. In principle, then, this story is declaring in the most powerful way that by the actual works of the law, no human being is ever going to be justified. Exactly the truth that the Apostle Paul speaks in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, where he declares that by the works of the law, no one is ever justified. This story declares that truth. Nothing in the law, not even all the sacrifices, are going to be sufficient or adequate or possibly able to address the deadliness of their sin, bitten by these serpents doomed to die. So the beginning of saving faith, we ask the question, why do we need a Savior? Why do we need to be saved? And the answer is this, because we have sinned. We are sinners. We are under the sentence of death, and we cannot save ourselves, and no amount of keeping God's law will ever do it. Before we can possess and exercise saving faith, we must see about ourselves that we have been bitten with deadly and damning sin. We are those who stand under the judgment of the law of God that says the wages of sin is death and there's no hope in the law of God. We can't save ourselves by any good works that we might ever do. So then Jesus is going to teach this Pharisee for whom this story had these kinds of implications and connotations, Jesus is going to teach Nicodemus what is the meaning of saving faith. We see this principally in verses 15 and 16 of John chapter 3. Jesus cites this bronze serpent story 
to illustrate what salvation by faith is all about. So here's some other observations we need to make about the story from Numbers. Things which, of course, Nicodemus, faithful Jew, knowing the scriptures, things that he would have clearly understood. So in Numbers 21.7, we see that the people come to Moses. They confess to him that they've sinned. They beseech Moses to pray to God to take the servants away. Now, that's exactly what Moses prays for, but God does not answer Moses' prayer. Rather, God answers in a different direction. He doesn't remove the serpents. He doesn't remove this very incredibly powerful lesson that connects sin and death. He doesn't heal those who are bitten. Instead, verses 8 and 9, God tells Moses to make this bronze serpent, to set it upon a pole, to place it in the center of the camp, so that if anyone is bitten by the serpent, any of these serpents, all he must do is to look to this bronze serpent on a pole. And in looking, he will live. Now, again, the critical point here is that God is granting salvation and deliverance in a manner that is beyond the scope of the law of Moses. It is outside and beyond the sacrificial system. No one here brings an animal sacrifice to the tabernacle. Uh, No one finds a priest who's going to hear his confession. No one slays an animal as a substitute for his own sin. None of the provisions of the law are exercised at all in this deliverance. It's over and beyond the law. But over and beyond the law, all that is required to be saved from the deadliness of the serpent's venom to remove the consequences of their sin is to look to the bronze serpent on the pole. Looking, they will live. Now I want you to think about all that Jesus is saying when he is citing this story to Nicodemus the Pharisee. Think about the full ramifications of this as this Pharisee, Nicodemus, is hearing this. Think about the comparisons then that Jesus is making between himself and this episode where the bronze serpent is lifted up. Verses 14, 15, Jesus then says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, the first comparison here is obvious. Jesus says, as the bronze serpent is lifted up, so must the Son of Man, Jesus himself, be lifted up. Now, even though Jesus doesn't explain what this lifting up means, he is saying that he too must be lifted up. That's the obvious comparison. The second comparison is what is implied in this statement. Those in the Numbers story who were bitten by a fiery serpent only needed to look to the bronze serpent to live. Just that look was all they needed. 
No works of the law added to it. Just that look was all they needed. And in looking, they would live. Now, Nicodemus would have known this story very well. He would have known that all the dying Israelite had to do was to believe that this was the way of deliverance, this was the way to be saved, and simply then to look. To look believing that this was the way to be saved. To look to the bronze serpent. And so Jesus says in verse 15, now the comparison becomes clear that whoever believes in him, likewise, whoever believes in him may have everlasting life. In other words, simply looking to the bronze serpent as a remedy for the deadly bite is a perfect picture of saving faith. In the story of the fiery servants, God makes the connection between sin and death graphically obvious. The Israelites sinned. They rebelled. They were afflicted with certain death. But all they had to do to be saved and delivered from death was to look to the bronze serpent, to simply trust in this provision from God. And in looking, they were saved. In looking, they were believing. They demonstrated they were believing by their looking. Their looking was their act of faith. Now, in the same way, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, everyone who looks to him, everyone who believes in him, everyone who will do this will have everlasting life. So Jesus is saying to Nicodemus that he is God's way of salvation. Whoever will look to him will have eternal life. But how is this so? That leads us to the last part of what saving faith is all about, and that is the object of saving faith. Here we need to observe carefully what Jesus says to Nicodemus and what Jesus doesn't say to Nicodemus. At the time that Jesus says to Nicodemus, uh, referring to himself as the Son of Man, uh, verse 14, but also in verse 13, when he's going to talk about being lifted up, he doesn't explain what lifted up means nor does he actually explain what it means to be the Son of Man, but he calls himself the Son of Man. Now, not having the background that the Pharisees had, we sometimes would wonder, what's the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man? What does this mean? It was, in fact, the favorite designation of himself that Jesus used all throughout his three and a half years of ministry. He referred to himself primarily and repeatedly as the Son of Man. And so we look at verse 14, the verse that we read, but look back to verse 13. It's the first time he says to Nicodemus that he is the Son of Man. He says in verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
So Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he has descended from heaven, that he himself is this heavenly son of man that the prophet Daniel wrote about. Going back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, listen to the vision that Daniel had. He writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him, meaning this Son of Man, to him there was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man that Daniel prophesied about, that he has a vision about, is clearly the final king, the king over all other kings, the king over all nations and all peoples and all languages, the one who is the eternal king of the eternal kingdom, who happens, of course, to be the Messiah that God promised to Israel. But further, we need to note verse 16. Because there we have the further designation of who Jesus is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, many scholars believe that when we come to verse 16, we no longer have John quoting Jesus. But verses 16 through 21 is really John's summarization, inspired by the Holy Spirit, summarization of the remainder of the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. So whether verse 16 is specifically a quotation of what Jesus said, or if it's a summarization of what John records that Jesus actually said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus is the audience for these words. Nicodemus is the one who hears that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That everlasting life is found by faith in the son. Now, that makes sense. If, if we're to believe that by looking to Jesus we are going to have everlasting life, then we have to believe that the object of faith is going to be someone who can actually secure for us this blessing of everlasting life. If we're going to look beyond the law of Moses, if we're going to look beyond the word that God had given to Moses by how we must live, if we're to find in something a salvation that takes us beyond the law, then it must be someone who is himself from heaven and someone who is fully capable of saving us from all of the consequences of sin, someone who is, in fact, no less than the Son of God. Now, what Jesus didn't say to Nicodemus becomes very important here. Jesus didn't explain how or in what manner he would be lifted up so that by believing in him, a person would have everlasting life. He does not say. 
But in the Gospel of John, the lifting up of Jesus always thereafter means the lifting up of the cross. But here, this night, neither what Jesus said nor what John says makes that clear. John 3.16 does not say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die upon the cross. It does not say that. Jesus is saying that in the context of that, he's going to be lifted up, but he doesn't say specifically, precisely what this means. Did Nicodemus ever come to understand what Christ meant? John does not leave us with that unanswered question at all. Because in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John, when Jesus has been crucified, given up his spirit, uttered his final words, it is finished. We read about Joseph of Arimathea, who petitioned Pilate for the body of Christ. What we recognize is that the companion of Joseph was Nicodemus. We read about this in John 19, beginning at verse 38. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. Most of the Sanhedrin were in the audience around the cross watching Jesus be crucified. Nicodemus was there watching Jesus being lifted up on the cross hearing the last seven words of Christ and the final word, it is finished. Nicodemus understood what it meant for Christ to be lifted up. So here is what the cross means for saving faith. The Son of God, fully God and fully man, died for us in our place. He's our representative. He bore our sin, taking our punishment. He's our substitute. He satisfied the justice of God. He's an expiatory sacrifice, a sacrifice that removes our guilt. In his dying, he removed the wrath of God, which means he is a propitiation, which causes God to be pleased and appeased and at peace with us. Thus, as Isaiah has said, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. For the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And to trust in Christ means to trust in him plus nothing else. To trust in Jesus the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus and to trust in nothing else. In the person of Jesus, you have all the work that Jesus has done 
You have everything you need to be made right with God. Like the snake-bitten Israelite, all you must do is look to Jesus, believing and trusting in Him, and you will be saved. Now, the great Baptist preacher Spurgeon was concerned that at the point of faith, there would be those who might not understand that God in John 3.16 has granted them the privilege, even the right, to ask God to save them through Christ. To know that this message is a message designed for anyone who comes to this point of concern about his or her sin. And so he tells this story about how there was a foreman in a certain factory in the north of England who had often heard the gospel message. He was troubled with fear that he himself might not come to Christ, that maybe the offer wasn't really for him. Maybe this wasn't so for him. His employer happened to be a Christian. And one day the employer sent a card to the factory, to the foreman, which said, come to my house immediately after work. And so after work, the foreman went to appear before his boss, knocked on the employer's door, and the boss comes out and says to him rather roughly, what do you want, John, troubling me at this time? Work is done. What right do you have to be here? John replied, sir, I received this card from you saying that I should come after work. His boss said, do you mean to say that merely because you had a card from me, you are to come up to my house and call me out after business hours? Well, sir, replied the foreman, I do not understand you, but it seems to me that since you sent for me, I had a right to come. Come in, John, said the employer. I have another message that I want to read to you. He sat down, he took his Bible, he opened it up to Matthew eleven twenty eight, and read these words, the words of Jesus. Come to me, all of you who are labor and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. Then he said to John, do you think after such a message from Christ that you can be wrong in going to him? And that is when John clearly saw that the offer of the gospel was for him. He believed and was saved. The whole work that you must do for eternal life and for living now has been accomplished for you in Christ. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe that it is faith in Jesus that you require, but faith in Jesus, all that you require, to know in our woundedness by sin that we cannot save ourselves.
there is one and one alone who can cover our sin to heal our burdens, give us everlasting life. Enable us now and every day forevermore to look to Christ and to be saved. In his name, amen.